I'm Caroline. Over the years, I've started a bunch of creative projects I failed to finish. So I wanted to talk to creative people, writers, comedians, filmmakers, photographers, musicians, about how they work and what they do when things get tough. Learn the secrets of finishing. From Dublin, Ireland, it's Operation Project. So I'm here with Anne, Anne Gildy. I have here writer, actor, comedian, musician, Renaissance woman. Have I left that now? No. <laughs> That's it, I've covered all the main things. I was going to write actress and comedian, and then I was like, I kind of fucking hate comedian. I don't know why, I just don't. It's so funny, you know, I waver with both of them because I, uh, when I was at drama college in London, I had um, a voice teacher actually from Australia who uh, always said that, you sh that female uh, actors shouldn't call themselves actors. They should call themselves actresses because it honours the women who got out there and oh, uh, first got on stage. Oh, okay. You know, that women weren't allowed on stage in Shakespearean times. So in honour of the whole journey of women going onto the stage, you should be proud and call yourself an actress. And okay. I used to agree with that. And now, oh, I don't know. You know, yeah. you get to sit and go, ah, actor. I always call myself an actress if I'm talking in that way. And comedian... Oh, I think comic. I like comic. comic. See, comic's nice. Comic makes me think of Buster and Dandy. Yeah, and Dabino. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Comedian. No, no offence to Victoria Wood, but it just makes me think of Victoria Wood. Like when I hear the word comedian, I don't think Sarah Silverman. Comic. <laughs> Let's just comic. say comic. Yeah. Uh, and I also have funny, candid truth teller written down here. Funny, oh Jesus, will you give that to me after and I'll write it down. That is a great, <laughs> that's what I'm going to say. Funny, candid, truth teller. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Candid, I'm very appreciative of candor. I think the world could do with some more candor and I think you're a very candid person. I enjoy that quality of you very much. Um, thank you. I I, I, um, I, I would also, I would, um, also use, I like that word candor. I would have been using the word in my mind, authenticity. Ah, uh, yeah. Think, you know, um, but candor is ni nicer. Candor. Authenticity is lovely. You know it when you seize it. Like it's, it's yeah. kind of hard to quantify, but everyone knows somebody authentic. And everyone knows fucking bullshit when they see it. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I love authenticity. I think everyone yeah, knows. I've got that kind of word. I've, now I've got candor in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> you stick them all when on your it, CV. When it, when yeah, because I've taken a break for a good while. Um, so the newest, my uh, my musical group that had, we stopped working. And um, I haven't been doing solo stuff for a good while. So I've taken a long break, but I've been writing tons of stuff and thinking about what I'm going to do on stage. And that's the word in my mind the whole time. Writing, so you've been writing for stage, writing like stand for stand-up or like... For stand, oh, um, I, it, I'm writing it in a stand-up frame, but I'm thinking of it as a show um, because... There's a film being shot. Is the the shoot is ending just now? That it and the film is inspired by my last book, my memoir. I've Tell got, us the name of your I've, memoir in case anyone doesn't know it. I've got cancer. What's your excuse? <laughs> Which but, is such a fucking deadly name. Yeah, but what do you get from that name? Uh, what do I get? I get. Uh, well, it's okay what? if I don't do everything because I've got fucking cancer. What are you doing? What are you doing with your life? There's a, it's like, it's, it's, uh, there's a, there's a, addressing the fact that people spend a lot of time doing not enough or not enough with their lives and life's is a precious gift. Am I getting this completely wrong? <gasps> no, life it's interesting. Gift. I think there was ambiguity about what it meant and what, what I meant by it was that um, everybody in life needs an excuse not yeah. to be this go-getter that life seems to demand that we be. And uh, so I was saying, I've got cancer, whippee, that's my excuse. <laughs> What's what yours? Get out of jail free. What's yours? But, uh, but then somebody said to me, oh, sounds a bit like, oh, I've got cancer, you know. I, you know, oh, it's really hard for me. What's your excuse? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. then it, I, I didn't realise that till there we was on the bookshelves. And then uh, I was no, I think, embarrassed by it. No way. The, it, it's, I think it's obvious what it means. And it's like, it, it, there's, there's an excuse. <laughs> it's, it's obviously hilarious. And it's, it's so, um, it's a bit contemptuous, but in a fun way. 
I like oh, it. Oh, contemptuous, I like. Yeah, well, but it's, uh, it's, it's funny. It's, um, and it's the opposite of Moni. It's not Moni at all. Oh, good. I just didn't want to come across as Moni, but I did want to write about the experience just from the, the texture of the experience, the smells, the feelings, the... You know, I'd know I could I, when I was going into chemotherapy. I couldn't find anything about what it felt like at that time. It was um, 2011, uh, and I was just really fascinated by the whole process. And that's how I got through it. I yeah, guess. you felt like this hadn't really been expressed adequately. Yeah, <laughs> just the detail, the whole sense of walking into the chemo ward and the smell of the stuff and how it's administered and how you feel and. Um, I know everybody feels different, but there is a whole... Uh, I, I was very interested in the ritual and uh, and I felt a bit distant from it too because, as I wrote in the book, I was really depressed before I got cancer. So I kind of flipped through it kind of 50-50 about whether or not I wanted to live. In right. fact, to be honest, I didn't. And then when I did live, I thought... come on come on it's a rebirth come on this means something and then also then my oldest friend Patricia her cancer came back then after that and she passed away and she had two kids and I thought well come on you know yeah you know get with the program sort it out yeah well just love life and then you know I, I met my partner and that was a big thing all my life I'd always thought, I really want to share this journey with someone close. I'm quite a shy person and uh, I was just finding it so hard pushing out in the world and just knowing that I really wanted to meet someone I could just be so close with and the two of us would trundle along together. And all my life I really wanted that and... Uh, and then it was, um, yeah, it was a couple of years after I'd finished treatment, I, I met my, my partner. So it was in the wake of, of that. You, had you been in a different headspace or time, you may not, not have met him. It was like, yeah. it, it came after that. So that had almost, your cancer had to be, yeah. all, it was just part of the... Yeah, so um, I, the reason I mention that is because, you know, there's a whole, I suppose... It's a whole thing about, oh, you know, be independent. You don't need a man, you know. But it's human beings, we're pack animals. And I, I just felt on the journey I'd been on, um, a lot of it was um, quite lonely because, I, you know, I graduated college in Dublin. I went, I want my life to be different than anything I've experienced here. I just broke away from everybody I knew. I ended up living in a squat in London on my own, got my own squat. And, uh, <laughs> How do you get your own squat? Well, so, squat well a, friend from college, living? a friend from <laughs> a friend from college gave me the keys. Okay. Yeah. Um, cool. It was on the King Lake estate off the Old Kent Road. And people don't realise, but up until 1984 in London, the population was falling. Okay. And uh, so this was this beautiful 1930s estate. I mean, it's very run down. They used to say this is a heroin central. I never experienced that. Not a smackhead myself. <laughs> but it was it was quite derelict, the whole place. Um, and so it was the squatters who kept it alive. And I actually ended up getting a tenancy on the place. It was actually very organised. It wasn't scummy or anything. It was right. Really... Nice. Okay, nice and nice squatting. That does, it sounds very civilised. Well, it, like it sounds like a good use of resources. It's it was a, a poor use of resources. Yeah, you know, um, it was Southwark Council, which were dis, was disgracefully run. And it, um, so, I, um, and an amazing bunch of people. I remember there was, there was five of his who together ended up taking the case. Um, filmmaker, hat maker, writer you know really mm. creative people and then um when I was leaving London in the end I gave the, my tenancy to a lawyer who was working pro bono for refugees cool yeah you know yeah. I mean at least those there were spaces then to do stuff you know? and what of the hat maker well I, I can't I never saw any of the hats I just went I just they the just co- said I'm, the, I'm a I'm a fucking hat maker prove that I'm not <laughs> in the courtroom in the courtrooms and said oh he's a hat maker and did I'm you like, not come sporting some very <laughs> when I'm looking back I'm going yeah um, he's full of shit you know but it's so funny sometimes people say to me ooh don't say you lived in a squat because they imagine that you know you're tripping over needles and yep. people cooking up 
I don't know, whatever. You know, imagine mattresses leaned against the wall. That's it certainly... It was my lovely flat, you know. I mean, bits of it were a bit run down and stuff. Oh, but Southwark Council was just such a mess. I remember my gas fire broke down, so I just went to the council offices and I said, oh, I need a new gas fire. And they came around and fitted the gas fire. They oh. didn't realise it was a squad. <laughs> That's very kind. Oh, it was just different days in London. Now all those properties, you know, under Thatcher, you could buy them. They were selling, you know, it's just all push-out, ordinary working people. Mm. Um, I, it's just, you know... But what of the comedy scene in... So you were part of the comedy scene in London at that time? Well, I never felt part of anything. <laughs> <laughs> you were there. No, but, I was yeah. there. I did. I started out doing my open spots there. Um, what did I do? When I went to London, I thought, oh, I want to get into performing. So um, there was two magazines there called City Limits and Time Out. Sure, and I used yeah. to look in the back of them. And there used to be mad things like Lambeth Council, a two-week workshop with industrial and domestic theatre contractors. I did I did these things where you just... What's an industrial theatre they, they contractor? They were called... There was this theatre company called Industrial and Domestic Theatre Contractors. Okay. And uh, they... I remember doing a two-week full-time workshop with them, half in Brixton and half near the uh, Bristol Old Vic in lovely rehearsal spaces, oh. with a whole bunch of fascinating people, an actress, a screenwriter from Australia, all these people. And the Lambeth Council funded it, and we were just guided through this so, incredible theatre practice. So we did loads of stuff like that. Theatre and gas fires. You were just really, you were, your whole lifestyle was funded by Thatcher. That, you see, people always give out about Thatcher. But no, she... Bloody, they hated it. Lambeth was a classic Labour council. And right. so they would have supported things like the arts. Okay. Whereas Just out of spite, if nothing else. Well, you know, it all links back to, I suppose, this golden era from maybe the end of the Second World War up until the end of the 70s. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying it was amazing, but there was maybe an ethos that education was important for everybody and that the arts were important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so there was this space. So yeah. I did loads. I was working shitty jobs. Sometimes I was on the dole. I didn't have to pay rent. And I found loads of these projects that I used to do um, in the back Free of the... Freewheeling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I did... I was constantly doing different theatre projects with people. I went to Moscow with a youth theatre company. Um, I t- we toured England and Scotland with um, a, a play about apartheid. Uh, I did tons of stuff. Um, then I set up a theatre company with two other women called Doris Karloff, where we, again, did everything. We didn't know what we were doing. We were doing street theatre. We were doing a bit of comedy, a bit of this, a bit of that. Then I uh, then I thought, oh, I better get sensible. Ooh, um, don't like to so, that. <laughs> so then I thought, I need, to, I need to make money. There's There was no model there for... I was... My catch-in-hand job was working as a wench in a medieval restaurant. <laughs> no way. And it was so shitty. You know, you're talking central London. This is mm. Tower Hill, the most horrible tourist trap. Uh, called it, It's called a beef eater by the Tower of London. Okay. Absolutely. Oh, beef eater is like a chain sort of. No, it no. wasn't. Uh, this one isn't part of the chain. Okay. It's, it's, it was an indie beef eater. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. It's in an old ivory store. And uh, basically just all these trestle, all these long tables where they just shoved the tourists in. And then we we had to get in there, wipe all the cutlery, cutlery <laughs> and set up all the tables. We had to, we, then we had to put our costumes on. We had to sing, dance, serve the food. We had to work from half six to about 11, half 11 every night. It was 11 quid. Oh, okay. It was 11 quid. You're talking, you're talking late 80s, early 90s, 11 quid a night. And I remember a guy from the city, once they were having a party in there, this is when the, the you know, when the Thatcher years, when they, you know, they were the kings were. And he was going, oh, Lord, uh, Lord, what would you, like, what are you earning down here? And I told him, and uh, he was like, he was just gasping. He just couldn't believe. And he was going... And he would like, have thought wenches were I much said, better paid. Yeah. I said, if you're so upset, go and tell the manager. I have to tell you, the, the management too, it was a Spanish guy who was managing it, Pedro. And uh, It's very authentic. And uh, the place was so shitty. And I remember a tourist going up to him to complain, going, I want to see the manager. I want to see him. I am the fucking manager. <laughs> <laughs> you get a measure of the place. 
Christ. Then. But that was wonderful because I was working with loads of really old performers who kind of ended up being like King Henry VIII or jesters, whatever. Okay. And there was a no. Yeah, because it's more, because you're actually keeping a foot in performing because you are actually singing this and dancing. Is, I know it's very. Well, I always felt that. And yeah. I always treated it like it's not the audience's fault and they're the audience. And I give. Uh, 100%. I know it's pathetic, but I have this thing about... But there was a guy called Stanley, and he had been on a show called Hello from SEAC, where there's a South Sea Islands Armed Forces. I mean, it's after the Second World War. Like, he would have... You know, amazing history. I always remember one night, all the performers were gathered around Stanley backstage, like a really old man. You know the way performers have to keep going always, isn't it? Like, and so he would have been quite... elderly and uh, I remember him just sitting he used to play the lute and sing songs madrigals yeah whatever (laughs) I don't know but he was there in his jester's outfit like the velveteen pantaloons (laughs) and his cap yeah yeah. Shakespeare he was all a mashup and he was sitting there and uh, I said oh what's wrong and um, he he didn't know where he was he was he had just his memory gone he just had this blank and he was sitting there backstage they called it backstage it was just this a corridor the kitchen the kitchen basically because we were serving food too and uh oh i just i i don't know i always loved the idea of showbiz and to me you know i just at least i was doing something always in that direction you were entertaining people no like yeah i just had this thing i just have to keep doing workshops, doing anything to keep performing. So I did everything, everything, all, you know, I've done street theatre and uh, cabaret and uh, somebody once offered me a job as a stripper, but I didn't do that. No, just, you didn't even do it once just to say, no, No. it's, no, not a doctor. It sounds awful, doctor, that. (laughs) Doctor stripping is an old doctor thing. I see some of the burlesque. Girls do it, and you go. Maybe burlesque was tantalizing in the nineteen, I don't know, thirties or forties. When you come on, we see nudie. Jesus Christ, nudiness is everywhere. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sold on burlesque myself. No, but you know, I know, but I know heaps of people do it. It's extremely mainstream. Weirdly mainstream, you know. You just meet completely normal people who do it, and I guess it's you very liberating. Co- I could do comedy burlesque, which would be funny, and then you just go outrageous where you take off all your clothes and then you just bend it over and get <laughs> showing your arse all in people's faces to really underline the what are you looking at? The uh, anatomy of another human being, you big stupid wanker. I think there'd be some people who would be extremely excited by such a proposition, just like actual normal people just sticking their horses in people's faces <laughs> maybe it's some kind of norm burlesque that's what we should start up I'll, I'll do it as well no I won't do it I'm not taking no it I just find the whole thing and the whole 1950s aesthetic and the whole and really it's a bit I corny it's corny and weird and um, yeah it's a bit played and it's kind of it comes back it never really goes away it doesn't and then it comes back around like every decade and, it's, and then unless you were doing something amazing I don't know what you could do with it you know, but mm. nudie, no. I don't know. I'll, we'll park that for the minute. So I have here London versus Dublin. Like, I don't know, how do you find Dublin in terms of people being like supportive as a, a kind of performing community or you're looking at me blankly. No, I'm just think thinking because I'm thinking the era. Okay, so I moved to London in 1987 mm. and I was there I finally left London in 1994 so it was a particular era and when I go back there I go that was definitely the past right and uh, I had a fantastic time there and I thought I could never imagine coming back to Ireland because London felt so big and so full of possibility yeah one thing was I re- gradually realised I did go to drama college in the end. I got a scholarship and I went to a fab drama college called ALRA, the Academy of Live and Recorded Arts. Cool. And I did a year-long postgraduate course there. Um, and it was a brilliant training and everything, but it was only after that I kind of realised the way things work politically and connective-wise. I would say if anybody wanted 
back then to get into performing, and maybe now, go to Oxford or Cambridge, get your degree, then do your training, and by the time you come out, all your mates are going to be working in the BBC and okay. HD and whatever. And you're ready, you've already made that work then. Yeah. yeah. Whereas now it's more open, which I love. I love the idea people have created. They're following on, um, on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook. They're getting their stuff out there. They create the following. They build it that way, and it bypasses those old-school networks. Mm. I don't know what the network was in Ireland. I could never quite figure that. But one thing I always felt in London, and I really felt it, by the time I graduated college, I was about 25, 26, and I thought, I didn't have an agent by the... You know, the agents only go to the absolute first division schools, which are Central, Lambda, RADA, um, Bristol, Ovic. There's a small bunch of them. And um, so I didn't have an agent, and I thought, I... I've done all this stuff. I've worked on myself as a performer and worked out a philosophy of what I'm doing in mm. front of an audience. And I've had tons of experience. Top wenching as well. Yeah, top <laughs> wenching. But and I've trained and I'm. But I'm outside everything. I, you know, I couldn't get me foot in the door to an audition. And then, and then. I had started doing stand up on my own because I thought I have to start earning some money, and that's a way to earn money. And I, you know, met various comics, some people who are super famous now. And uh, I just even remember then, like, I had no money. I was going around on my bike. I was living in a squat. I was living on fresh air, Mm. really. I was so thin at that time, my Mm. God. Um, Just through not having money to eat. And um, meeting people who were doing really jammy jobs for the BBC, doing corporate stuff all over the world, really. And I kind of began to feel like a bit of a failure. And I thought, I'm so outside this. And I also couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine being on the inside. And then there's a certain type of London person that you meet who's involved in the media. And they, you know, I, I don't know, they... I don't know, they, I don't know, I found them intimidating and I don't know, I just, I thought they were on a different planet to me. They, and my, you, I didn't my, want to know and they yeah. were inscrutable somehow, I don't know. Like, I just felt intimidated, it felt like a class thing, I felt, oh, my whole experience is so outside and I'm quite from a working class background and I just felt intimidated by it all. And, and you I, can't entirely pull on just being Irish, like, uh, no, like I, we well, can't because you're, because you're, Born in England. Well, I never did. Also, my parents had split up. My mum was living up in Manchester. So mm. I never, you know, I went years without even bothering. I thought I'm never going back to Ireland. I've mm. had it with that bloody place. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't feel a big connection to Ireland yeah. at the time. My brother was still there, but and my dad who I didn't see. And But you've I, always had a foot in sort of both. You've never been, like, I'm as Irish as it possibly gets so if I was in London I wouldn't feel quite the same class thing because I, I don't have any real Englishness uh, but you would be seeing it cause I suppose you, a bit you, you I mean know. sometimes people wouldn't even know but like because my accent always just can just fall back even though I was quite a young kid when we moved to Ireland but we hated Ireland and uh and then I had a big big connection to Manchester always so I just yeah I was keenly aware that you know my background in roots in Manchester was unsalubrious working class. Mm. And um, I, I just, it, it eroded the, I, I began to thought, oh, where am I in the world? I'm not, you know, I, I swear to God, I I did not make one penny um, from, not well, some bits of shitty money, but no serious money from performing until... Uh, 1995 when I finally permanently moved back to Ireland and I um, somebody saw me doing stand-up and I got a job on a program called the Jerry Ryan Tonight Show okay and uh, that that lasted for four or five months it was twice a week live tv I was playing a character on it I was doing sketches it was a lot of great professional experience in the weird setting of RTE yeah. which is not um, comedy wise just not that clued in, but it was great experience. And yeah, also, I probably paid decent. I as well. got yeah. five hundred punts a yeah. week for Fuck nothing. Off. Oh my god, that's amazing. That it was amazing. Yeah. It was incredible. You I, see, you were bringing back as well London. You came back with the London sheen on you. I suppose I've done an awful lot of stand up, even though yeah. I'm going 
Oh God! It didn't feel like much when you were in London, but then when you brought it back to yeah, Ireland, yeah. I've been doing it was a like, lot. Here is my stuff yeah. that I've been doing. I, I I'm yeah. a serious person. I was ready to do it, you yeah. know. And then at the end of that, I was going, Oh my God, am I going back to poverty again? And then the new list started by accident. One how day, did the new list start? Oh, the new list started. Um, me and Sue Collins and Tara Flynn were in a kitchen at a party in Drumcondra in 1995 and we just started singing and it was just towards the end of me being on the Jerry Ryan Tonight show and then we started singing, we got together, we wrote, our first song I think we wrote was Manolo which is one of our classics Yeah, yeah. people just always loved. Uh, we, we did, from our first open spot, I knew this, this is it. I just knew because I'd been doing stuff for... At that stage, hacking around, doing stuff since 1980s. Uh, you know, like you're talking seven, eight years of doing all my sorts of loony projects and stuff and training and being very familiar with the comedy circuit in London at the time. I just knew this is it. It felt and, special. Yeah. 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 And uh, it probably, well, did it feel like, like it was it exciting to maybe to be collaborating with people? Was, oh, yeah. I, yeah, that was brilliant too. I, I'm very collaborative. Yes. And maybe, I think what's so important for where I'm at now, it's so funny, like I'm 53 now and I'm just going, okay, I'm still alive after so many things. I'm still alive after going through the cancer. I'm still alive after my poor friend, Patricia, who to me should have lived and I should have died because she's kids. So I've all these reasons to go, I'm still here. And maybe you can go back and really try to achieve what you wanted to do with doing your own shows. Absolutely. Like I know uh, being older, it can, it, like it's hard. Doing stuff when you're older is hard. I'm, I'm 43 and I just qualified as a yoga teacher and I'm kind of like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> like becoming a yoga teacher for 43. But you know the way you're actually have a different intelligence into how life works and how learning works and how you can be serious about things. And in a shorter period of time, you can achieve a lot more because you can be a lot more focused when you're older. 100% agree. I'm just going, okay, feel like you're starting again, but think of all the knowledge you have. Mm. So uh, I think in the past, when I did stand-up, I had the ideas I wanted to express and then a kind of fear that made me kind of collapsing into gags and a persona that didn't have the authenticity I aspired to. Or as a friend once said to me, and anytime I see you do stand-up, you're just not expressing the person that I know through knowing you. So it's not that I want to go back into the stand-up world. I, I just, because the film will be coming out and... I hope I'll get another book out with around that. I just want to have a show and I just want to keep doing my stuff, keep my overheads low so they don't have the pressure of going, have to make mega books from this because that yeah. can sometimes skew stuff. That can interfere. Like keeping it fairly lean and fairly pure, it's yeah. it, tapping into your authenticity, your candor. Your, this is it and allowing that. All your experiences just filtering through that and like I, the I only ever did it once I did stand up once but I know that feeling of like the feeling of being on a stage and you're by yourself and you're not in a band because I've been mm. in bands as well you're not in a band there's no one else there there's just you you live and die on just yourself when it's just mm. yourself and that's while well, collaboration is lovely that's also quite intoxicating you've kind of no one to blame but you've no one to share the, 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 if it goes well it's you and if it goes badly it's you yeah, and I think that the way that I would cope with that now is is um, being really embedded in the content of what I'm doing so that it is about communicate. it's about getting across what I want to say. Like I had a friend in the past who said, you know, when you go out, think don't think about making them laugh straight think about interesting them think about engaging delight and surprise engage yeah, yeah. so I know I can engage and I know if I'm passionate about the beats of what I'm saying it will keep it there and I just went to see tons of comedy in the Vodafone Comedy Festival and I found it really inspiring and it really clarified my thoughts about what I want to do and I think at the age of 53 you're going I don't really care where I'm going to be pitched on the, you know, there's a real 
hierarchy and career ladder that I just don't want to get involved with. Right. Um, I just want to do my stuff. Um, you know, and I became aware of that in my late 20s when, like I said, I was on the circuit and then I'd be hanging out with some people who were doing incredibly well and you kind of go, oh, my God, I'm really bottom of the pile here. Yeah. And then in my late 20s, I also became aware that some people broke huge like, I've, I've known people who broke massive, and I knew when they got certain breaks that they were set up for life. They'd got that kind of break. I sort of had that break in the new list. That's why I liked it so much, but it was depending on two other people all the time, mm. and uh, it was constant trouble in that dynamic. That's, it's always like that with a group. Uh, it, it's just you ha- the needs of everybody have to be so taken into account the whole time. But because it's kind of like a family and it's your job and it's your creative outlet and it's your mates and it's your business, there's so many things all depending on these relationships and people actually trying to express to each other what they actually want. And they might not do that all the time very oh, effectively. It can be so toxic. Yeah. And I think um, the, the, certainly the two, there was one breakup of the Nulas that came at the time when we were at the cusp of really doing the business. We were in Edinburgh. We were recording two episodes of our BBC Radio 4 series. We were on big posters for BBC Radio 4 all over Edinburgh. We were playing the main theatre in the Gilded Blue. We were on just before Ed Byrne. That was the year he won the Perrier. We should have been contenders for the Perrier that year. Um, We were in talks about doing a sitcom we have been working on a hilarious sitcom with two other writers. All the, all the ducks were in a row. And for me personally, given that I've been on that journey since I'd left college, on a very long journey to that point, I felt I really, you know, earned, earned, that, earned, yeah. earned the right. And, um, and there was just this pull away in the group with one of the members. And um, uh, I... That's so hard because it's not like you can strap a saddle on someone. Like they have to, you have to all want the same thing. And uh, yeah, she didn't want the same thing. And, um, you know, I didn't talk. We, we, we went through Edinburgh that year, literally not talking to each other. I mean, oh, can you God. imagine That's that? That's a it tough toxic. And uh, I didn't talk to her for years and years. And then you gradually become friends again. But sometimes I just... It's no point looking back, but I find it. And it's not even about forgiving, but I just, there's a bit of me that goes, you were so wrong. You were yeah, so wrong. But you may wrong. have been hit by a bus on the way to the filming of your first episode of your sitcom. Like, I I really think oh, about life in those terms. Yeah. Oh, I suppose. Yeah. But it was cruel. Yeah. It was cruel because um, we did keep it going after that, but it was never the same again. And we did have fantastic experiences, yeah. I suppose. And that's true. But it, because it was a group that I got my break in and I had come up through the ranks of people doing stand-up on their own. And I saw how if you break as a stand-up, that makes your career because it's your name and you can... But if you're the, in a the group... branding is sort of undeniable when it's you yeah, by yourself. Yeah, where it's always... Yeah oh, you were one of, you were one of. Mm. Whereas I feel my years of writing and comedy experience folded into that, made that act. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, it's like breaking free. And also, the, the yeah, I'm just, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and yeah, I just saw that dynamic. I just thought, mm. uh, and uh yeah, I I just I'm, it's not kind of revisiting past places, but I just go. I'm never I'm never going to work in a group like that again, ever. I mean, I need to have the courage. It's also about confidence and courage to go. No, this is me, and this is my own voice. Yeah, you know, I have this quote on my office wall that says, um, "Take responsibility for your work and make yourself visible." And it was the advice that I was watching this reality program about an art school. And that's what the arts tutor said to the kids who were studying visual art. Say it again. Um, Take responsibility for your work and make yourself visible. See, that's that. what great advice. Like that actually works for everybody in Um, anything. It's it's wonderful. wonderful. And I think in the new list, I was out there, but not making myself visible. I liked being hidden Mm. and... You, the responsibility is a bit spread. And I think uh, I just need to do that now for the rest of the... Yeah, just you. 
Yeah. Just you fucking doing it, yeah, living or dying on it bo- yourself. Yeah, and yeah. Ha- having the balls. Because life is so short. And like I say, it's so different now. Because I saw in the 20s, like I said, I saw some people get amazing breaks and I knew they'd made it, whatever. And I knew that I'd be back doing shitty jobs again, when, which has happened intermittently all the time. I'm back doing shitty jobs again. Like when the new list split up, I, I saw some guy on Facebook looking for supermarket demonstrators. And I thought, OK, I want a lo-fi job just to keep going. There's only 10 bloody euro an hour. <laughs> 10 euro an hour for fucking humiliating yourself. Go, would you like a bit of cheese? The person with the cheese on the end of a cocktail stick. Yeah. That's wenching again, pretty much. And I just yeah. thought, and then I was talking to someone about it who sensibly said, you know, you do have a brand and I think you need to look after it. Um, and I don't think that you should be seen to be doing <laughs> People would probably think it was some performance art or some political statement or a oh, social sure. experiment. I ended up doing surveys down at Dublin Port for a few years in, in the mid-2000s. And, and that was after I'd done a lot of telly and stuff. And, uh, you know, meet people, they'd go, where's the camera? And I'd go, <laughs> uh, no camera, country of residence, please. <laughs> what is the purpose of your travel? Man, yeah. and, uh, But uh, there's dignity in work. Oh, there used sure. to be, but given the disgusting system we live under, there is actually no dignity in work now because if you're working any lo-fi job or you go I just want a job job to earn some money they pay such disgusting wages in relation to the true cost of living that if you just you, you know it doesn't it's it's heartbreaking it's a challenge for sure yeah yeah, yeah. so um I, I have to work out that model but um and I guess you know because it's funny then when you're working in showbiz Maria you can earn ridiculous chunks of money for you know 500 yeah. punts for doing some yoke and Jerry Ryan in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, also if you become a celeb, you know, I, I know this from even, I just even the last outing of the Newlers was quite funny because we were playing the All Together Now festival. And uh, oh, there was What's one of the All Together Now All Together Now is a wonderful festival that John Reynolds set up. You know, poor, the late John Reynolds, he, he passed away shortly after the first outing. I think it's on this weekend. Okay. Yeah. Um, All Together Now is a wonderful festival that was kind of going back to what the electric picnic used to be. Right. Now, I'm not big into camping and going to, fe- I'm not into, I like my comforts mm. and I don't like standing in a field. Oh God, it's the standing. Like, I just want to sit no, in a fucking chair. I, you I know? want to sit down. I want it to be civilized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is the talk of old people now like I didn't have to sit down when I was 20 I was grand for standing in a field yeah. for four fucking days but it's also I met so many people my age who get through that whole thing by doing drugs right so shit you old know, people doing drugs old like old people doing drugs shit. old people doing their bumpy uppy kind of drugs okay. are supposed to keep going or whatever and so many of them I know I was dancing at um, some um, some gig at the, all together now my sister and somebody we know went wow you're really enjoying it and you're not even off your head <laughs> you know and uh, I kind of go oh, oh you either get totally smashed drunk or you're on I don't know what they take you mm. know now because I don't do drugs anymore and um I, I just think when you're older, it's just devastating for your system. Sure. So I just, it's, it's not my bag at all. But we were, the Newlers were in the the little cabin outside the where the comedy was on and there was a mess up with the lineup and we were stuck there for ages and are like, in my 50s and they short dress and the big shoes and I you know I hope they gave it, you a chair uh, yeah we were just sitting there but as Sue just said to me um, Jesus this, there's not a lot of dignity in this <laughs> It just didn't. And then, it's so funny, just chatting away. So there's one comic on, and then afterwards he was giving out and he was going, oh, I only got paid 1400 for doing my set there. And he was giving out because some other comic got 5000 for right. doing his set there. And you're saying like a 20-minute set or something? Li- yeah, but listen to this. Well, well maybe we didn't long. So, so he was giving out because some comic got five grand. He was getting 1400 or maybe 1250 I don't know. So this is the level. This is working class me looking at the sure. bottom line. But and then Sue said to him, You know how much we got? We got seven hundred and fifty euro between us. Right, right. We got two hundred and fifty euro each. You know, it's almost like doing supermarket demonstration level comedy, you know, and then you got your tickets in. I'm fascinated by those levels of that's that's kind of what the way showbiz, but if you're perceived to be a name, you yeah. know, and I guess you you know, 
So, I mean, it's a bit like with Instagram now. I was just reading about some of those people who are on Love Island. When they get a few million followers, they can get 15,000 a post. Okay, right. It's sick. Yeah, it's yeah. sick when most people, and um, most people have to do ordinary jobs to keep the world ticking over. And that is what keeps the world ticking the over. The most people, and, though, are also looking at Instagram all day. So uh, there's a great irony to the fact that they're effectively paying for that. Because I know, I, their just, eyes are paying for it. It makes me, yeah. I, I just, don't know. I've never even looked at Instagram. I'm very behind time. Uh, I do. I'm fascinated by. Um, I'm fascinated by Instagram stars and what people put up there. Right. And um, I'd say it's probably fun to look at, which is why I've never looked at it. <laughs> I've a bit of a compulsive personality when it comes to these things, so I know sort of to leave things alone a lot of the time because I will scroll just as much as everybody else can. But I have, uh, yeah, I have some resolve where I've just actually. Yeah, I've never looked at Instagram. I've done a workshop in learning how to post on Instagram, but I've never actually looked well, at it. Did you? Wow. Yeah, I'm, I guess oh. I'm interested in it because it's a massive social phenomenon over time. Phenomenon. Mm. Phenomenon. Yeah. Phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's interesting to see. Snapchat, I've never got with that. Instagram is so funny. It's just... People put up pictures and loads of people go, oh, babe, you look lovely. Oh, babe, you gorge. Oh, 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 oh gorge. You know, the yoga world is completely enthralled by Instagram as well. So, And like, it's all body, body, gorgeous I guess so. body. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine it's very unpleasant. Enough for a yogic, I would say. So I've just steered well clear of that really entirely. So, which is almost a head in the sand ridiculousness of its own. Like, I, I'm not saying I'm better than other people because I don't look at it. I'm a little bit better. Than Do you look people. at Facebook? No, I'm not. I've never been on Facebook either. I so. look at it because I'm interested in what people have shared and stuff, but I absolutely hate the business model. And I, I loathe Sheryl Sandberg. I loathe her. Mm. She's a woman who is writing about women leaning in and she's a billionaire herself. So she's telling ordinary women to lean in and mm. get on with it. Mm. And she's the one who came up with this model of monetizing people's personal information. Mm. Um, uh, what does somebody call her? Writer, the typhoid Mary of of the of the monetization of information. Like but if people were pissed off about monetizing their information, wouldn't they just leave? No, but they don't because they're caught in the loop of it because people also use it to keep in touch. Yeah. I find it great for keeping in touch with people out there in the world because I'm quite um, hermity. <laughs> but there's probably... <laughs> so I like to... See, I used to use Twitter, right? And yeah. I never read the feed. Well, I do use Twitter sometimes. I've never read a feed. I just post. So I don't actually read anything on Twitter and I don't know anything that anyone's saying. And I know that seems really selfish and I guess it is in a way. I treat it, treat it like a little magazine that I'm just putting things on about, but I'm not, it's not for me, it's not very two way. If people want to talk to me, I'll talk to them and that's all right. But I suppose looking at a feed is, I draw the line looking at a feed, I guess. Some people seem to really engage with it. Mm-hmm. Um certain writers and celebrities whatever would engage and get a conversation going it, Twitter's never been my thing mm. but they say if you want to promote yourself you need I think there's another way around it I, I don't think know so. if you do a more focused thing or whatever I know that I have to do I, I really want to do shows and to sell them there have to be some social media element but it's difficult to be authentic focused. in that sphere like you're talking about authenticity so. it's hard to be authentic in social media you kind of look like a wanker a lot of the time, even if you're not. And it's, I don't know how to straddle the line between that. And I think that that's extremely challenging. Like, I love podcasts. I'm completely obsessed with podcasts. I probably spend at least three hours a day listening to podcasts. That's my thing that I wow. do. You know why? I don't listen to that many because I haven't got into the access, the good ones. I, I, I don't know. I haven't got into that mode of, of but from what I've heard, it's a real authentic thing about it. And it, yeah. We're just, just talking. Like we're just talking for an maybe hour. Maybe it's because it's not so visual as, you know, yeah. certainly Facebook and... Uh, I hate looking at people. Uh, <laughs> like I want to oh, listen to I know. them. I, you know, I went through a phase of putting up pictures of being on holiday and shit. And then, you know, the more you read about the way the information has been monetized and just, you know, it's the... Oh, what they've done, this information capitalism is just nauseating. Mm. Yeah, and um, they have to be given the information in the first place in order to monetize this it. This is it. So, so then you go, I've put less and less personal information up. Yeah, and that seems know. that seems sensible. 
Um, we just we go down some tangent here because you could really talk about Although that I will stuff say, all day. A yeah. thing about uh, it's I found it very good for promotion shows because it's older people who are on Facebook. Yes. And and so when we were promoting our newer shows, we would you can get sponsored ads. Oh, they work really well because they are highly targeted. This, this they, is what they happens can be super, to give away Yeah, but I just noticed over the years of using it, it got more and more expensive to reach a bigger um, uh, constituency of people. But you can target very specifically. Yes. And that's very satisfying yeah, when yeah. you're doing your target audience. And whatever. it's working. It's yeah. converting. And then my colleague Sue and Sinead, who she writes with, have an act called Dirtbirds. And they have built their whole following and their whole business model on videos they post on Facebook. And Not they, on YouTube, on Facebook. They probably do a lot of work, like, figuring out what works and what doesn't work. Well, it, it was kind of accidental to begin with. They put up a sketch. People loved it. It went viral. And then they were going, where's the show? And then... But what they noticed was they... Facebook began controlling it. So if you wanted that many views, you were going to have to start paying yeah. for it. You know? Yeah. So they... But when you don't mind your information being out there, you don't mind when it, you're using it for your business. For commercial It's benefit, a two-way yeah, street. So that is one reason that I stay on Facebook and I haven't, I might change my personal page to a business page or do something that would be, that's the one reason that I stay on Facebook is I'm going in the future, have to get information to, out there. Yeah, uh, my partner Brian just started doing set-up comedy like a year ago. He was never on Facebook ever because he's joined Facebook age 46 which is quite a cool. Age 46 in like 2009, 47 actually, it's best in 19. And that's like, that's a hard time now to make. But actually he finds it brilliant for connecting with other stand-up comics and his peer group. And he loves it now and it's brilliant. It's actually really oh, useful. So. Really useful. And, you know, I was talking to my brother about, you know, I just want to do tryout spots to get my show together. And, oh, your uh, brother, Kevin Gildy. Yeah. Famed Irish comedian. Yeah. yeah. And he was saying, oh, contact a lot of them through Facebook. You just So it is the business, you know, there's a whole great business model there and it works yeah, well for there's that. there's a network. And that's, yeah, yeah and, and that, but that's why I suppose making these things work for you rather than fighting yeah. them and making your authenticity and candor work on the platforms rather than trying to bend to its will. Mm. Making it work for you rather than think, you working for them. I think there's something very funny to be done on Instagram around that. Yeah. Um, well, maybe, well, I think you should think about that. Maybe we'll brainstorm that yeah, because I, I think, think there's something, something there. something particularly around the body. Yes. You know. Yeah. There's, there's some there's giant stuff to take the piss out of there, I'm sure. Yeah. So tell me, you were talking about writing a book. You were talking before about finishing stuff and, oh, look, it's just so, okay, what book? This you is first... what this podcast is about. I didn't really introduce it properly, but this podcast is about um, finishers, finishing things. It's about creative people who are actually able to punch something through, unlike people like me who have like a drawer with, half a novel in it or a bunch of short stories or half written songs on a on garage band. I want to talk to people, creative people who finish projects. And that's why I'm talking to you now. I just don't think I introduced it at the start. I'll have to come back okay. and do that later. But that's why, yeah, so that's why we were talking about finishing Anne. Sorry to interrupt you there. But. Well, my whole life I've been um, writing stuff since I was a kid. <laughs> my, my office is just full of, of decades of notebooks of, half-finished stuff of half-written ideas. I read somewhere that Sylvia Plath finished every poem she started or turned every idea that she would have started into a poem. I find that really inspiring yeah. because I think I had this method of write a bit, no, that's not right, write a bit, right. And for the last three summers, I've started like about seven different books and would write chunks and go, no, that's not right, that's not right. And it's just all a process. It's a bit like an artist with sketchbooks, you know, going, it's going this way, it's going this way. I think but that's probably a vital part of the process to actually bring a project a little bit along and then go, no, not... Like, maybe Sylvia Plath, who we all know how she wound up, yeah. maybe she shouldn't have finished every single poem she saw. Maybe that's a bang wrong thing to do. Maybe things need to... Some things do need to be I think abandoned. You, the thing I find I need is an awful lot of space... And I try not to get involved in the busy, busy thing of the world because I just know to do stuff, I need to be quiet and I know that it just takes time and that you shouldn't try and force stuff and you shouldn't give it 
deadlines at, at the beginning point. But like I have two published books and the way they got made in the end was I had written a chunk of the first one, a novel called Deadlines and Dickheads. And, oh, I'm not happy with that. Oh, no. I saw wins there. Yeah, it's not good. But it's funny. But, it, it's, it gets a laugh, but is it a cheap laugh? I don't know. Oh, I is that, know. Is it, that was, it, it wasn't my idea. And also, but I, it's like take responsibility. I have to take responsibility. That is the name on my piece of work. <laughs> And uh, I let that go through. So I have to take responsibility. I'm still laughing and I still think it's funny. <laughs> well, I really like it. It was a very funny book. It was published in 2006. But I suppose it's a kind of a lack of confidence. I have been struggling with trying to write a book and I had written a big chunk of a book. And then O'Brien Press got in touch and said, do you have anything? And I gave them the chunk I'd written and they loved it. And then I finished that book because I had a deal for it to be published. And right. that's why it got finished. That's highly incentivizing. Yeah. yeah. And then the next book, Memoir, came out because but I also then I remember I, I, I you know I said I was working doing surveys down Dublin Port yeah and I was like oh I don't know what happened at that point in my career I think I was just going I don't know what I'm doing but I was so struggling to make ends meet because I, I really got lost in about the mid-2000s I had a few years where I was going oh what I, I don't I don't know what you know and but the big thing was I was really running out of money and mm. it was just the money pressure was killing me. And then there was one day that somebody phoned up and said, we're doing a photo shoot to female comics. Do you want to come along? And I thought, oh, fuck. <laughs> God, I don't have bullshit. And then I thought, oh, go. So I went, put up in horrible hair and makeup and clothes. It felt horrible, whatever. But I was having a great chat with the journo who was doing the whole piece. And she went, my editor needs someone like you. She's looking for someone right now. And I got a job that lasted seven years. Doing oh, a, a column. column. Yeah. In the back of the Daily Mail magazine. A really nice editor um, called Aileen. English, English-Irish woman, but English editor. And uh, oh, Fleet Street. Really, she just went, I love your writing. Right, You're right. great. It wasn't any Irish bullshit. <laughs> it was really nice. I was just working for this really nice English woman who was just a brilliant mentor and paid me incredibly well. Seven years. And was that like weekly? Yeah. You see. And, and I did that every week. Yeah. And know? it probably, you got, the routine oh, of it just got better. Oh, it was amazing. Was it challenging yeah. at the start? No, because I've been doing tons and tons and tons of writing. Right. You know, so... Um, that muscle said, was very active. It was very... The muscle was very active. And uh, she said, could you write me a sample column? And I wrote a three very quickly. And she went, you've got the job. Brilliant. And then that meant... Because you wrote those quickly, you knew that you yeah. could produce that level. Yeah, but also yeah. I had so many ideas. I, mean, I wasn't doing much stand-up at the time, I think. But I had so many ideas in my head for it. So... When you've got a stand-up head, you're thinking of stuff all the time. Yeah. So I never had any problem. I think you were saying that before. Yeah. Generating stuff is not the problem. It's turning it into stuff. I mean, I could generate stuff till the cows come mm. home. I'm, my head is just full of ideas. But it's which one you choose and what you go with. So, yeah. I, you know, I found it quite easy to keep that. I did my column every single week for seven years. Um, and then I wrote about the cancer when I was going through cancer. Then out of that, I got a radio interview. Then somebody heard the radio interview and wanted to do a documentary. Then a publisher saw the documentary and wanted to do a book. Um, and that's why I got my second book done. Again, I had a book deal and I had a deadline. Yeah. And I had an advance. And that was why I pushed through the whole book. Because a book is such a mountain to climb. Yeah. So it took me a very long time to find the form that it would take and the tone. Um, you know, I wanted it to be honest, but I wanted it to be entertaining. I want, you know, I was getting the structure and, um, and then... I haven't read Deadlines and Dickheads, but I have read uh, I've Cancer, What's Your Excuse? It's fucking hilarious. And it's really sad. Oh. Um, like, I mean, it's sad and hilarious. Thank you. Um, well, then that was optioned by, by a director. And uh, when they optioned it, it's amazing that, you know, if you have stuff out of the world, it's that thing, take responsibility for your work, be be visible, get it out in the world and say, this is me, this is mine, and I stand over this. And uh, as long as you have stuff out in the world, stuff can happen. Because yeah. then that book got optioned by a filmmaker. And when it was optioned, I you know, kind of thought, this is amazing. Oh, yeah, like this will ever happen. And four years later, it's just finished shooting. Yeah. 
And that's four years. That's a long, that's a long time. But that's not time to where you have to like do anything. But that's with them. I've just come down at the Vodafone Comedy Festival and all these younger comics are going, congratulations on the film. And I go, yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's the jammiest break I've ever yeah. got because I, I, I wrote the stand-up for it and I put together my old stand-up because the character in it is is a stand-up comedian who gets cancer. You wrote her, like, the material? I did, but I, you know, and I gave them that and they, and then it's their film. So, I, you know, I played uh, just the part, the makeup artist to do um, Look Good, Feel Better, a, a workshop for women okay. going through cancer. I oh, played, right, yeah, I just yeah. played that character in it, but otherwise it was like, no, this is yours now. You, you've, it was an... My book inspired this and you've taken it and turned it into something else. It's your project. So, uh, you know, they uh, they may or may not have used it. I don't know how. It'd be exciting uh, for you even to, to, to see to see that yeah, in your work. They have an extraordinary actress called Gemma Lee Devereaux who's playing the main part. People are saying, oh, is she playing you? And I'm going, it's not me. It's inspired by, but it's taken somewhere else. But um, You should just say yeah. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't mind. She is a babe. Oh, my God. So she, are you. Oh, thank you. But I mean, she's a young babe. <laughs> <laughs> she's a beautiful actress. Beautiful. I was just watching her working on the, the day I was in the rear. It's amazing watching these. Those, uh, I was watching some of the younger actors. And I was just watching the tone of, of, of where they pitched their performances when it was being filmed. And it was like sub-reality almost. It was so quiet and focused. They just had, they, I was watching them and I was going, my God, they have a real sense of how this is reading on screen. Yeah, because you do much less for camera. It's not like being on stage. Yeah, well, right? I mean, like, you know, we did a lot of camera acting at school and the joke um, when it was a drama school. So it was, you know, the joke is always... You know, we had a little draw and it was eyes up. You know, this is this is camera acting, just like <laughs> yeah, eye, yeah. Eye, it's all in the eyes. Um, so you kind of know it's internal. It, you know, it's let it happen. Don't don't make it happen. Mm. That it's internal. But the internality of of the way they pitched the performances, I found extraordinary. It was just so in. It was yeah. so small, and uh, I'm very excited to see. I'm very excited to see what is created there. And Do you know what it's called, the movie? Um, it's called Dead Happy. And I don't know, is that... Um, that's what it's called at the moment. I don't know, is that a working title or will it... You know, it may change when they talk to distributors or they look at the final yeah. product. But amazing cast. There's Gemma Lee and then Tom Von Lawler is playing the love interest. Mm-hmm. Kevin McGowan is playing her brother. There's a, a fantastic young actress who's playing... Um, a friend going through, I don't know her name. Amazing actors in it. Dermot yeah. Crotty, Brie Brennan, brilliant actors. Brilliant. Can't wait to see it. <laughs> I'm making a play your ukulele face and no. hand gestures. And oh, no, so but I, was, I wanted to say something else yeah. about this whole thing of finishing. Oh, yeah, I finishing. Think, uh, I struggle at being a finisher. Like, I'm, I'm fascinated by... Um, like say someone like Sharon Horgan, who has so many projects on the go and is just operating on this amazing level of getting stuff out there, whatever. And then I guess it's when you're fitting into a thing and you go, my writing is going in this direction. Because I just feel my creativity has always been splaying out mm. in different ways. Oh, that's going to be a stand-up idea. Oh, that was a column. Oh, this is a book of essays. Oh, this is for a novel I diffuse. want to write. But yeah. it, it's too diffuse and there's a kind of a lack of responsibility and always keeping it so open. So when things are so open, you're never committing. Mm. Um, And I really admire people who can. And I have finished stuff, but it's only through, you know, finished stuff with the Newlers because we were working together and there was deadlines there, finished. Deadlines are great. And and maybe the thing at the end of the day is giving yourself deadlines. I do think it's important to have the openness, though, because if you deadline too soon, you've not explored what might be there. Yeah, well, you might end up like Sylvia Plath. But that's yes. but but that's that's a it's a good point. Give your how do you give yourself a deadline that you're serious about? And well, and I think really question. good writers, really just really practical writers. I hear you know some writers having this format of they would write for four hours in the morning every day and then go out and meet people. Yeah, 
Whereas I'm just not, I've never been organized. I'm kind of going at this age, I need to really get organized and be disciplined and go, I get up at this time, I go to the gym, I write at those hours. I kind of, I like just space to fart around. Yeah. But so does everyone. But you know, when you write and you then you actually write three hours and then you feel fucking amazing. You know when that happens? No, I think it is time for the, the, the amazing. You see, I grew up on a small farm and nature just unfolds as it unfolds. And I like the idea of things unfolding. And I think the pressure we put on ourselves to commodify our heads and monetize what we're producing is absurd. Mm. I think the financial pressure on most people is so unfair and there's no need for it. Um, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm anyway, whatever. I'm now in the time of get with the program or whatever. And uh, I'm not worried either about being older because I think being older, being 53 at this age, uh, in this age, means a bit different to being 53 even 10 years ago. For sure. Because everybody is living longer and because everybody knows they're going to have to bloody keep working longer. I know, yeah. I remember a contemporary comic of mine um, stopping years ago and going, oh, I think anybody still doing stand-up at, uh, after the age of 40 is pathetic. And it was amazing that he could even say that because I think people over 40 are doing the most interesting work. No question. No yeah. question. Yeah. Because it's nice to see younger comics, but I'm sorry, it's the older ones with the life experience who yeah. really have something to say. Who are able to, like, bring a lot of humour out of shame and vulnerability in a way that it's more challenging to tap into that when you're younger. Yeah, although I know that a lot of comics in on the circuit in England would feel that when you're of a certain age, say 50 plus, it's really hard to get on any of those stand-up programs. Oh, on TV shows? Yeah. Right, right. But, well, I suppose that's another sort of... But that's a whole other thing. And there, there's a million time, ways yeah. around that now yeah. because there's so many other platforms. So that's to deal... I mean, and I also think when I was younger... Who were the big comics? They were 50-something men who'd spent totally. bloody years on doing live stuff and all sorts of show-busy stuff, you know? So, you know, it comes and goes, the model changes. Yeah. And uh, I just see, say, like with Sue and Sinead who were doing their show, and they totally have the demographic that we got, which is older women. Yeah. Older women who do go to theatres where they play and who will pay a nice price for a ticket and do want a nice night out. Yeah, and they want to sit in a chair. Yeah, and they yeah. want to sit in a bloody chair. <laughs> totally. And they, you know? Um, so, anyway, I was going to do a bit... <laughs> I brought my ukulele a lot because um, I started playing the uke when the when the newlers ended. I'd always bashed around on the piano, but I never found any fluidity. Even though I've been bashing on the piano for, like, all my life, and I really know the chords I like and everything else, I never... You know, I was just looking for feel. It, would, it wouldn't be so logical. Like, I did have lessons when I was a kid, but it wouldn't be logical enough to go, I need to get some lessons to work this out. Yeah. I'm not like that. So, but then, so one thing I've been doing is just farting around for hours and hours on the uke, writing stuff. And um, and so I've just also, as a parallel thing, just wrote a lot of, uh, I've written a lot of songs over the last while. And I just thought I'd do one which kind of expresses a worldview. Oh, do it. I'm very excited. Go for it there. <laughs> I just thought because we were going to be discussing uh, finishing stuff and, and the whole creative process that just something sounds, you give things space and then you write things and you don't really know what they are, but there you go. Moon to moon, sun to sun, there goes the day and Oops, another month. Did you get enough done? Did you have all adequate fun? Dusk to dawn, morning to night. One minute you're 20, next you're 85. Did you get enough done? Severed head in a bin Ever had a limb chopped off by a militant 
Ever looked up and seen a drone about to shoot you? Ever taken a week off work with a bad bout of flu? If life's a box of chocolates, did you get to pick and choose? Or did fate pick up the box and throw all the shitty ones at you? Screaming babies into the world we come The world screams back, get some bloody stuff done And while you're at it, oh, 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 oh Have some bloody fun Moon to moon, snow to sun There goes the year and oops, your life is gone Did you travel? Did you possess? I don't know if I've had adequate fun. I'm, I'm, I haven't to have a serious think about that now. I really ended. like that phrase, yeah. adequate fun. Yeah. And that to me... Is that the name of the track? Yeah. yeah. And to me, that is what, you know, did you get enough done and did you have adequate fun? Yeah. And it, it, life in our current um, philosophical framework, the dominant philosophical framework, seems to be just those two things. If you've done enough, if you had fun, yeah. you know... I'm as guilty as that as really anybody <laughs> you could meet um okay so i think we'll leave it there okay that was Thank amazing you. thanks so much Anne.